sermon is called The Answer. The Answer. And now we're going to be going verses 31 through 49, kind of finishing up what's before us this morning. It says this. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king of kings, excuse me, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because it breaks iron to pieces and shatters all things. And like, that, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly the potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be brought to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole providence of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So what's amazing about this, should be amazing to us all, is the king set before all the wise men of the land an impossible task. Not only tell me the interpretation, but also tell me the dream. 
So none of these men knew what to do. They knew that an answer had to come from divinity, but they didn't know from where. They said, no great and powerful king has ever asked this of ordinary men. So Daniel and his companions sought the mercy of God, and God answered. God reveals his plan to the king. And the truth about prophecy is, especially today, a lot of people get really hung up on all the minute details about prophecy. For instance, we want to look at this stream and people want to say, well, there are ten toes, so this is talking about the, the ten from Revelation. And we can get really hung up on that sort of thing, but if we just take a practical approach, I believe that there's more encouragement from this passage than really anywhere else, any of our guessing or any of our assertions we may make. A lot of people get hung up on the details of prophecy, and the truth is there's a real danger to this. What is that danger? Well, it's a verse that all of us should fear but don't. It's in the book of Revelation 22, 11. It says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. God really does care whether or not we mess with the Bible. We don't need to mess with it. There's enough here without us ever guessing or without us saying, well, this must be this or this must be this. Because as we said just a few weeks ago, every single time this happens, we make guesses of what's to come, the signs that are ahead. Every single time we make guesses, what happens? Disappointment and people point at us and laugh. You fools. You fools. When really if we just look at the Bible for what it says, there's a lot of encouragement here for us, and then we don't need to backtrack because we can just look at the sacred pages and say, here's the answer we want. So is God here prophesying to Nebuchadnezzar about the, about the beast with seven heads and, and ten crowns? We don't, we don't know. We have no idea. It doesn't say that anywhere, and it's really difficult to make that assertion. So let's just look just for now at what the Scriptures say. Because what we have is the benefit of hindsight, right? So you and I have the ability now, because we stand here, to look back on these passages, to look back on the scriptures, and see what has happened. So how do we know whether or not a prophecy is true? Just wait, right? Lots of men have made lots of prophecies. Lots of men make prophecies about prophecy, and almost all of them up to this point have been wrong, dead wrong. I remember just a little while ago hearing about a pastor who made some uh, prophetic decisions about the coronavirus. Well, this was prophesied in Ezekiel and, and all this other stuff, and uh, none of his stuff lined up at all except for the fact that there was a virus, which isn't detailed at all in the book of Ezekiel. So we need not mess with God's word, amen? We don't have to mess with it. God's plan is really, really clear, and it's here right before us. It says this, that there are going to be four kingdoms, Right? One of those is Nebuchadnezzar's, right? So who are the other kingdoms? Well, there's going to be three other ones after Nebuchadnezzar. He tells Nebuchadnezzar this in a dream. What are these three kingdoms? Well, there's the Medo-Persian, the kingdom of bronze. There's Rome, the Roman Empire, the kingdom of iron. And then there's this divine kingdom, 
So as I said before, you and I have the benefit of being able to look back and see what has happened. So what has happened is the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon in 539 BC. Rome conquered that kingdom in 63 BC. What about this divine kingdom, though? It's conquered the other kingdoms by overcoming the world in 32 AD. So there are people that say, well, what about all of the kingdoms in between? What about all the kingdoms that have happened? Because obviously Christ's kingdom isn't here yet. We're still waiting for this thing to happen. He's not sitting on his, on his throne before us. He's not ruling in righteousness before us. Where is your God? Where is your king? Where is this Jesus? It's the things that are thrown at us all the, all the time. The kingdom that we are to be concerned with is the final kingdom. And Jesus talked about this kingdom 53 times in the book of Matthew alone. 53 times he spoke of this kingdom. Just one example of that, Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, everyone notice here real quick, not that I will cast out demons, that I cast out demons. This is present tense. But if by the Spirit of God... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has, past tense, has come upon you. Hold on a minute here. We're still waiting for that kingdom, aren't we? Not according to Jesus. So if we want to take some sort of weird spin on this and say, well, maybe he meant a future, maybe he, that's not, if we look at the text for what it says, I don't care what translation of the Bible you have, the tenses are the same. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that should be real obvious to all of us. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God 45 times in the book of Luke alone. He spoke about it also in Mark and also in the book of John. Just two examples. The book of Mark 9 Verse 1 says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So two things are possible. There are two options here. Either Jesus was being metaphorical when he said there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Either he was speaking metaphorically, which is interesting because in the whole rest of the passage that we're taking this from, not speaking metaphorically. Speaking to the crowd, he is speaking to. So one of two things is true. Either he was speaking metaphorically, I rule that as not happening, or he was speaking to the people that were sitting before him. There are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Christ came and established his kingdom. Christ had victory over death, victory over sin, and the last, the last enemy that will be put to death is going to be that final death. Satan's already been conquered. He's on borrowed time. Amen? Borrowed time. The kingdom of God is here. I don't know why there's so much confusion about this because the scripture is clear. We're not awaiting uh, another empire to rise up. We're not awaiting Israel to get strong. We're not uh, you know, awaiting for uh, the, the kingdom of Britain. We're not awaiting the kingdom of Ireland. We're not awaiting for another kingdom to get strong. The kingdom of God is here. Now, does that mean none of those things will happen? No, those, those things may very well happen. But the scripture said that there were going to be 
three other kingdoms, right? And the last kingdom was going to be the kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar was concerned not with, the, not with the fourth kingdom, not with the third kingdom, not with the second kingdom. Which one was he concerned with? His own. It's amazing. We're always concerned of our own skin. It's probably important. It's what he was worried about. So point number two, God not only reveals his plan, God always reveals himself. So there's never going to be a plan that God reveals where God does not also reveal something of himself to us. We all need to understand that the only way we can know anything of God at all is if God shows us. Why is that? Because you can't see him, right? So the only truth that we have, what we can know of God, is what God reveals to us. And in this plan, God reveals himself, which is, this is just so amazing. Just as Daniel and the rest of the chosen Hebrews had went through the king's plan of re-education, now who gets the re-education? The king. So where'd you get that from? Well, it says right here in Daniel 2, verse 37, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. It's time for some re-education for you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're a king, but you're not a god. This is the god that gives you all things. As Daniel is unveiling the dream and its meaning, he is literally telling the king that he is not responsible for his own success. This is going to be very interesting for us in a couple weeks when we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar claiming all of this uh, authority and claiming all of this success for himself because all of it was given to him. There is not one king in power today that God has not put there. Amen? Not one president in power today that God has not put there. Amen? He rules all. He rules all. So Nebuchadnezzar probably didn't receive the rude awakening that he should have by this statement. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom. He gave him the kingdom. The reason you are king is because God made you king. Not because you wanted to be, not because of who your family was, not because of your lineage. Ultimately, God wanted you to be king, so you are. What happens when a man establishes himself as a king and God doesn't want him to be there? What happens? He's gone. Right? He is gone. Think of Zimri in the Chronicles of Kings. Zimri waited for the men to go out to battle, and as soon as they did, he came in, killed the king, stayed behind, and all the king's family. And then what do he say in that capital of Terza? said, I'm king. Established all these people to rule underneath him. All right, guys, you are my courtship now. This is, this is all my people. I am here and I am king. And he sat upon the throne, the blood of the royal family still drying on the floor around him. And what happens? He starts to hear soldiers marching back because they'd heard in battle that Zimri rose up and killed the king and killed all the royal family. Zimri looks out and he sees all of these people marching back. And Omri at the lead. Omri was the father of, um, of Ahab. So they have this mighty man of battle coming back with all the troops. They stop war to come back and take care of business. And Zimri's no longer king because he pulls down a candlestick, burns himself alive, and all of the rest of his established kingdom. And the capital is no longer in Terza. See, if God doesn't want you to be king, you won't be. If God doesn't want a leader to be in power, they won't be there very long. Won't be very, very long at all. 
God gets his way, man. So he gives Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom and God will give the next kingdom, right? So when the Medo-Persians come up, God's going to be the one to give them the kingdom. When Rome comes up, God's going to be the one to put them in place. And Israel's just sitting here scratching their head. When are we going to get ours again? It's been a long time. We gotten forgot about? No, they knew the prophecy would, become, would come true. They were told the exact amount of time they would be there. Number three, it's probably the most amazing point of all. Nebuchadnezzar responds to Revelation. It's really amazing, actually. Because his name means Nebo, one of his idols, will protect the crown. Fully dependent upon his own idol to do what he knows his idol will do, although it can't because idols are nothing, Scripture tells us. Literally worshiping nothing. So Nebuchadnezzar responds to this revelation in an amazing way, perhaps even an unexpected way for most people that knew him. Then the king fell upon his face. The problem with this is kings don't usually touch the floor. You ever notice that? Just think of modern kings. Whenever they're going to enter a room, what's rolled out for them? Carpet, right? They don't touch the floor. They don't touch the dirt. They don't touch the filth. What's Nebuchadnezzar do? He falls upon his face. He gets down beneath everyone. When you walk into uh, the, the king's courtship, the king is always seated where? Higher or lower than everyone else? Higher. He's elevated. He is up. At this point, he's down on his knees. He's on the floor. He's no longer elevated. He pays homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods. Hold on a minute here. Your God is Nebo. The God that you're telling everyone to worship is Nebo and in part yourself. And he says, your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. It's amazing. When you see faith in action, when you see God reveal himself as who he is, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar falls to the ground. He's now down on his knees. You know, it's very interesting Every single time God humbles any one of us, it's always to a point where we cannot stand. Amen? Every single time we get so proud and God needs to deal with us, he always brings us down to our knees. And that's his love. Just because God was not God of Babylon, does that mean God was not God of Babylon? No. Nebuchadnezzar had a head full of hair, as far as we can tell. And God had every one of those hairs numbered. Not a sparrow fell to the ground in the whole kingdom of Babylon that God did not know about. Why is that? Because God is the ruler of all. When God reveals himself for who he is, things really change. We need to deal with that truth. Remember Peter, away from me, for I'm a sinful man. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, how do we know Daniel was right? How do we know that he, that he wasn't just a, just a Jim Jones? Just happened to guess it right. Just happened to have someone digging through the king's trash so he could get a good prophecy. Well, we know he was right because of the king's response. See, the king had told no one about this dream, nor would he tell anyone about this dream. What did he tell his men? Now, you figure out the dream and then tell me the interpretation. You're not pulling the wool over my eyes. 
You figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, you'll be dead and so will everyone else who claims to be a wise man who can't figure it out, including those great and wise men that we brought from Israel. They'll die too. The king responds to this in an amazing way. Because the dream was recounted and that gave credibility to the interpretation. You see, all of those wise men, they wanted to hide the truth. They wanted to deceive. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you its interpretation. Daniel tells the dream, which gives credibility to the interpretation. Because he reveals the truth of what happened to the king, the king can believe what Daniel said. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. What mystery? Not only what the dream means, but what the dream is. You know, I think that Daniel's uh, adversaries, the wise men in the king's court, were a lot wiser than we give them credit for. Because they told the king... What you've asked, no mortal man can tell you. And they were right. They still didn't know how to give him an answer, but they were right. God gives Daniel what he needs in the hour of need. Have you ever noticed how in the Bible all of the accounts that we have, sometimes stuff always gets to the last thread? It always gets to the point where Esther's husband is going to slaughter all of, the, all of the Jews. It always gets to the point where that one faithful priest has to hide the last of the line of Judah, keep him from being destroyed. You ever notice how sometimes God always lets it get down to the very last wire? But what happens in that last moment? What we need, God gives us. God gives Daniel what he needs. Daniel reached out to him in full faith because if God did not tell Daniel what the dream was and the interpretation, Daniel was going to die. As were all of the choice men that were selected to be put in service with him, all of a sudden you find out that you're really not surrounded by all of these intelligent men like you thought you were, these wise men. Daniel reaches out in full faith and what happens? God gives him what he needs. Why is that? Because God always gives us what we need in the hour of need. And where we struggle with this most as Christians is we want God to give us what we want in the hour of need. Not realizing that often the thing God gives us is the thing we really need. Sometimes we pray for healing when there's no other place to go. And the person is on the bed and they are on a machine and there's nothing left for us to do. And we pray for healing and they pass on. And in the moment, it seems like, God, oh, what did you do? We were depending on you to take care of this thing for us. We were depending on you to, to bring this person back to good health. And God healed them in a way that we never would have asked him to. Not on purpose. Because God knows what is needed in the hour of need. And he always provides this. You know that Psalm 139 says that before you were ever even born, God knew how many days you'd be alive. That's amazing. That's a God that knows us. That's a God that knows and cares. He gives us what we need in the hour of need. 
And because of that, because of that fact that should resonate in all of us, the fact that when we get down to the wire, when we get down to the last moment and we are in need, God's going to give us what we need because of that fact, we all ought to stand in awe and learn. You know, sometimes we get to the point where we don't think we need to learn anymore. There's an awful lot of times where you and I are fearful. And what we know of God doesn't take away the fear. What Corey Tenboom knew of God did not take away the fear that she might go into the gas chamber. But what did it give her? Faithfulness. Because she knew whatever happened, God was going to be with her. God was going to provide what she needed when she needed it. You and I need to learn this. Faithfulness through the fear, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Let's pray together.